Uh, good morning, I'm Judy. I am a compulsive overeater, and I'm going to be speaking about the doctor's opinion and Bill's story and step one. Um, so the way I'm going to approach this is for the doctor's opinion, it's going to tell me what it is to be a compulsive overeater. What does powerless really mean? And then in Bill's story, I'm going to really look at the progression of the disease and how our lives, if you're active in this disease, are unmanageable. I did bring some pictures. Um, the first set, especially for the progression of the disease, uh, this is my third recovery. December, I have six years, by miracle of God. Um, the this picture is after my first recovery, which was huge. I don't have a before picture where I was down about 135 pounds um, until I left OA in 1996. And this picture is when I came back in 2001 where I'd more than doubled my weight. So I lost 135 and I think I gained back 160. And from my high back then, I'm down about 170 pounds. These are two more pictures of me just through, and you know, I say I love the way it printed out with stripes on my printer because it looks like I'm in prison. And I am, compulsive overeating prison, which is exactly what it was. So I'm gonna start with the doctor's opinion. And you know, I'm told in this paragraph right here where he attended to a patient who had been a competent businessman, good earning, successful, and he was hopeless. And what I actually did when I read the doctor's opinion is I made a list of all the characteristics that he uses to describe the alcoholic. And I got a huge list. And when I looked at them all in a row, I'm like, wow, I'm a sick person because um, it's pretty scary when you really realize what it is to be a compulsive overeater and you really realize what powerless is over food. Because then you're like, oh my God, oh my God, I really do have to do this program and I really do have to depend on a higher power. Oh no, I'm not in control of it. He then comes on to say that I know scores of cases who are the type who where other methods have failed completely. Once again, hopeless. Everything failed. The doctors, the everything failed. There was nothing that could get them to stop drinking. He then continues that the statement who confirms that we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as the mind. And you know, the thing that really stood out for me here is when he used the word alcoholic torture. It's a strong word, torture. But you know, uh, my disease was pure torture and hell. And it wasn't just because I was morbidly obese that you could see from my photos. That was like the tip of the iceberg um, because my head was in torture constantly, constantly. You know, I was addicted to dieting. I was put on my first diet at seven. Uh, my parents sent me to diet camp for two months at seven and then I went for nine summers. So my entire life since seven has been about how can we get Judy to stay on her diet? How can we get Judy to lose weight? And obviously, if you look at my pictures, diet camp was quite effective, wasn't it? You know, it taught me what it's like to be deprived of food and what it's like then to want food. So now the 
doctor's opinion, he continues to give more descriptions of what is a compulsive overeater. I'm maladjusted to life. I'm in full flight of reality. And boy, was I huge denial. I got to tell you, in that one picture, all black, I was convinced when I weighed 300 pounds, I always looked 180. <laughs> I was convinced of it. I always thought the full black outfit did the trick. And then I'd see the picture and I'd be so confused. How can that be me? So here I'm also told I'm an outright mental defective. There is something wrong with me. But most important is that I have a physical problem and a mental problem. And one of the things I had to learn was I had a problem whether I was eating or not eating. Because when I was eating, I couldn't stop. And when I wasn't eating, I wanted to eat. So there was no peace from food. I always wanted to eat more. And one of the things I heard that was great was um, my problem wasn't food, it was lack of food. Because it was just never enough food. And um, I was listening to a speaker on the way down. I've listened to her a few times. And I loved what she used to describe an alcoholic. And I could really relate it to my pictures because being morbidly obese does not make me a compulsive overeater. It's a byproduct of being a compulsive overeater. What makes me a compulsive overeater is that whole thing, that allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. So when I'm not eating, I want to eat. And it doesn't, and I always say, I never had to feel hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I just needed a spare second in the day. Eating is what I did from lunch to dinner or breakfast to lunch. I didn't need to feel bad. I just needed to eat. And then once I started eating, and for me, I swear it was every food. I didn't care. Now, obviously, there are foods that I do not eat, but I just didn't care. I just wanted to eat. I was just a volume eater. And I always say it was about how much I could eat as quickly as I could. That was it. Um, so we're told the allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind, it is twofold. I'm not one who can moderate meal. I'm not one who, um, like a lot of diet programs, tell you how to introduce food back in when you've lost your weight. Um, there are just some foods that will never be part of my life, and that gives me such peace, I can't even tell you. I'm just so grateful. So in the doctor's opinion, he com uh, continues, we doctors have realized that for a long time, some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. With all the methods, the scientific approach, nothing helped. They still could not, so I went to a therapist for years, not once, and I did go through a period in my 20s where I was bulimic before I came to OA. I didn't even tell her I was bulimic. I was in such shame about it. Here I am going to a therapist, and I never told her that. Um, so here, to me, is like a really powerful description. They believe in themselves, and still more important, a power which pulls chronic alcoholic back from the gates of death. So when I was in a relapse, or if I'm eating, I'm at the gates of death. It is that strong, because I don't know where my disease is going to take me. And I think, how much could I weigh in a relapse? And I have to believe it's the one pound before I would die. There is no cap. And uh, you know, when I was in that first relapse, which I thought was above me, I would never relapse, 
Um, but you know, I, um, I fell victim to that belief that I could now control my weight gain. And you know, it became the thing, I won't let myself get over 175. I won't let myself get over 200, 225. And then I think at 250, I just stopped getting weighed. You know, but that belief that we can, it's so easy to slip back into that belief that, let me find the perfect diet, I can control my weight. And that's what happens when I'm in a relapse. I do leave OA, I do not stick around, and I immediately go back to my default solution, let me find the diet that's gonna work for me. So on the next page, um, he continues that we believe, so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. And you know, I, when I read this, the one thing that always comes to me is Thanksgiving at my sister-in-law's. And I will never forget one time she's, and it was always at two. And I'll never forget one time she says, oh, I barely ate a thing today because I know I'm going to overeat. And I remember thinking, yeah, I had lunch, <laughs> breakfast, I had lunch, and then I had dinner, and then I had dinner. <laughs> I mean, come on, does a meal count at two in the afternoon? And usually they lived in Tom's River. My husband and I, I, I we stopped on the way home. I had to get something cold and creamy, and they had two places you could stop at. And, um, you know, it didn't matter. And I think many of us can relate to it. Never matters how full I am and how sick to my stomach I feel. I just got to eat. I mean, feeling full is never a criteria to eating. So he continues onward at the bottom of the page that I do not hold with those that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I've had many men who, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal was settled on a certain date favorable to them. They took a drink or so a date prior. And he continues about the craving. And then it says, these men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to escape a craving beyond their mental control. And that to me is such a scary line, beyond mental control. Because I think like many of us, I, um, I swore every night I was sticking to my diet the next day. I swore I was going to. I promised myself every single night. I had my lunch made, ready to go to work. I was ready. I bought the right containers, the right food. And then with me, um, I could not have food in my presence without eating it. So I would eat my lunch on the way to work. And then I'd buy lunch. I never had peace of mind if there was food sitting before me until it was gone. I just... There was no peace in that for me. Um, and then he goes on to talk about five different types of alcoholics. And you know, we might say, well, there's, there's different types of compulsive overeaters. One might have to lose 10 pounds, one might have to lose 100, or one's bulimic or whatever. But the fact is, if we all have the same obsession of the mind and a physical allergy, we're all compulsive overeaters. So it really doesn't matter. We might have all bottoms, but the fact is, if you're a compulsive overeater, you have no idea how far you're gonna go in this disease. Because in my third relapse, which was my last one, Morally, I went to a place I've never been to in my life and did things I swore I'd never do. That had nothing to do with food. It just had to do with my own personal moral decay. And this was after a huge spiritual awakening. Prayed to God throughout it. But you know, when you're into the food, it's pretty hard to listen to God. Um, 
so then he talks about what is the solution, and he does tell the person who, uh, he does talk about the person who came to see him, and that um, he followed the outline in this book. That's on XXXI, sorry I don't do the page numbers. And the only solution is the 12 steps. Like, I do believe that. It's either I'm in the food or I'm in recovery. There is no in between. And I do say in recovery, because I do believe every day I live in recovery. It's a state of mind for me. It's just a lifestyle. Um, and a long time has passed with no re return to alcohol. So the things that I really picked up for me from the doctor's opinion, what is a compulsive overeater? And here's what he told me. I am hopeless. All other methods will always fail me. I suffer from compulsive overeating torture. I am maladjusted to life. <clears throat> I'm in full flight from reality. I'm a mental defective. I have an allergy in my body, which means when I eat certain foods, they own me. Not only that, I'm addicted to eating, so I have to weigh and measure all of my food. And that means all my vegetables and fruit have to go on a scale because I could pack three vegetables, three cups in a cup if they're cooked. Everything's gotta go on a scale. I also have an obsession of the mind that tells me it doesn't matter whether I'm eating or I'm not eating, I'm gonna to wanna to eat. My mind just tells me you gotta eat food. Um, I'm unable to get help alone by a doctor. And nothing's gonna help me. Um, I am powerless, which means I am devoid of all strength. I live at the gates of death. The phenomenon of craving once the food is in my body is gonna happen. And this makes me different from others. Other people eat and they're like, oh my God, I'm so full. I eat, I might say, oh my God, I'm so full, but I gotta eat more mm -hmm. until I'm so unbearably comfortable and can't even move or breathe. And my pants are like asphyxiating me. I gotta eat more. No human power could stop me. Not getting married, nothing. I was restless, irritable, and discontent, and I realized, for me, what that meant is, if I want to eat and I can't, I'm going to be restless, irritable, and discontent. <laughs> Dinner's late, whatever, and that had to be one of my prayers in this program, to let go of my fear of hunger so I could be at peace when meals were delayed, when restaurants under-delivered, and what the menu said, thinking if it was an expensive meal, I should get the right amount, but it's okay. You know, obviously I would survive. I would survive because I realized I probably have eaten in my lifetime at least enough food for three people. So if I go hungry, I had my portion more than once. Um, I'm powerless, which means I eat to overcome a craving that I cannot control. And it does not matter what level of a compulsive overeater I am. And it also tells me the only hope I have is a solution in these 12 steps and to get a psychic change. And I gotta tell you, that psychic change is amazing. Um, there is nothing more amazing in life. And I'll talk about that in the last, uh, one of the last sentences in Bill's story of not being, not wanting to eat. It is amazing. I can't even tell you. It, to me, it's beyond words. When all, I don't even know how the program works. I know it works, I don't get any of it. Because I still can't comprehend how I don't want to eat all the time. Or I can sit before a table of food and it has no draw. Sometimes I actually look at it with confusion. 
that it's such a thing. It looks obscene. But um, anyway, so um, I am just going to go right into Bill's story. Okay, I've never done this. Okay, just continue. All right. So the first thing that stood out to me in Bill's story on page one, and here we're going to talk about the progression of the disease, because I realized I never started out eating a loaf of bread, right? I progressed to the volume I could eat. So we are going to talk about um, the progression. But, you know, here he talks about in the beginning, you know, he was in the service. I was lonely, and he turned to alcohol. You know, I mean, he turned to it. It wasn't an everyday occurrence. And it was just the beginning for him. And then already on the next page, we're seeing, I nearly failed my law course. At one of the finals, I was too drunk to think or write. Though my drinking was not yet continuous, it disturbed my wife. So here we're already starting to get to see the unmanageability of his life, you know? Um, but it was not yet even continuous. But his life was already starting to deteriorate. And I'll tell you, I could relate to that because I went to college, ate and drank my way through it, and literally graduated with one-tenth of a point above what you could graduate. I think you needed like a 2.0, and I had a 2.1. And that came from begging some teachers to give me a D so I could get out of there. Mm. Um, I get that. Okay, so then he goes on to tell us about um, the next page. Now this I found very interesting, as a lot of this is. Um, for the next few years, fortune threw money and applause my way. I had arrived. My judgment and ideas were followed by many. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part of my life. So what I found so fascinating about this was he drank more and life was good. He had a great job. He was married. Everything was good. It wasn't because his parents abused him or because he couldn't get married or because, you know, he was poor. He was doing really good. So I do not, I mean, I had a crappy childhood, as most did, I'm sure. I went through some very unpleasant things that I'm sure caused me to turn to food. But that is not what makes me a compulsive overeater today, you know? And I, I just cannot hold, um, pay homage to excuses. And so what I love is when a sponsee calls me, and I get this story of what happened the whole day. Like, oh, my God. And the last line is always, and I picked up, you know, so they present their case to me and I picked up. And I always say you picked up because you're a compulsive overeater. I mean, everything else is bull. It is. And, um, you know, we eat because we're not working our program. And that's what I've come to realize. Why did I relapse? I stopped working the program. I stopped working the steps. No other reason. It's that simple. I mean, there's no mystery to it. And they always say the food is the last to go. And I do believe that. Um, he continued onward, and here we're seeing more of the progression of the disease. My drinking has assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and night. We're seeing more manageability in his lives, unhappy scenes in his apartment. Then he got his golf fever, and liquor caught up much faster than he caught up. So he was doing really good. You know, he's playing on the circuit with, like, some golf pro. I mean, that's pretty hard, you know, to attain that level of status. But... I began to get jittering in the morning. Golf permitted drinking. Every day and every night. So success went hand in hand with being unable to stop drinking. 
Um, and, and to me, that is just the disease that I just can't make excuses. If I eat, I eat because I'm a compulsive overeater and I'm not doing the solution in this book. Then he talks about the stock market crash. And I always found the line fascinating, you know, I would not jump, I went back to the bar. I mean, he chose slow suicide. And I could say, wow, I wouldn't kill myself, but I'll go and eat how many of whatever, you know, and just keep eating anyway. So it continues on page five, liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. And you know, I think about um, my compulsive overeating disease, and like many, I'm sure, you know, it did not matter to me if food was raw or frozen. I ate food that I know was supposed to be cooked. Um, and I always ate frozen food because it was before the age of microwaves. And I ate, uh, I remember, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention a food in the room. Um, I remember, now before microwaves, frozen pizza. And you know, my mother being a good economical housewife, bought the cheapest one they had. So of course it tasted horrible. So I would take out my box of frozen pizza and I did this. I would put it in my windowsill in the sunlight, hoping the sun would cook it for me. But I had the ability to wait about five seconds. <laughs> and then I ate frozen pizza. Frozen pizza tastes horrible. There is nothing good about it, but it didn't matter. I had to keep eating. And, um, you know, I, I think about some of the crazy binging I did and, um, you know, the clear memories. I remember once taking, it must have been a five-pound bag of potatoes. I filled a soup pot with oil. I made a huge vat of french fries. It filled a turkey platter. I remember dousing it with salt that it was barely edible and, of course, ketchup. And I ate it. This was the life I lived. Um, it was crazy. And so I, I do say if I could recover, anybody could. Because food was just truly my life. So he continues onward. And we see uh, here he got a great business opportunity. Life was looking good again. No excuses to drink. Everything was going his way and up. He drank again and the opportunity was gone. And then he woke, and then, and then he just gets into the whole description of a compulsive overeater. I woke up, this had to be stopped. I could not take so much as a drink. I was through forever. Before then I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed this time, I meant business and mm -hmm. so I did. I mean, I'm in business before every diet. I, the last diet I went on before my first, before I came to OA is I went on a liquid diet. Uh, I found out work covered it because it worked for another girl and I went. You guys, and I still remember the doctor weighed me that time I weighed 295 and he goes, ah, you just made it. You know, because I wasn't at 300. So he gave me these five shakes a day, chocolate milkshakes I might add. And, um, and I don't know how you're supposed to go from eating nothing, I mean eating uncontrollably, to five shakes a day. So it lasted about a week, and then I remember I started binging on cucumbers and seafood chunks. I have no idea why I could buy them at the grocery store and just eat them. And then, of course, I, I lasted there about three weeks, and, 
it was never going to work. And then a friend told me about OA, and I tried it. Um, okay, so then he continues, then I got the promising business opportunity. Oh, sorry, we did that. So then he continued to say, after he made that big promise, um, somebody, he came home drunk. Somebody had pushed a drink his way. Was he crazy? Yeah, he was crazy, just like I'm crazy. And God, I can't tell you how many times I was on my diet game. And there they were, you know, the appetizers at a family event. And I said, just one, just one small plate. Or being out with a friend and, and, and somehow rationalizing that the three appetizers we were going to split for a meal, I could make into a, a healthy meal. Like, there was nothing healthy about them. But if in somewhere there was a vegetable <laughs> or a meat, which I don't eat now, but um, I could make it work, you know? Renewing my dissolve, I tried again. So, you know, uh, the line here, the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable. The battle to do courage was not there. And then the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony for two more years. And for me, a bottom in my disease was before OA. I was in my early 20s. And um, I'd gotten so morbidly obese, bigger than these photos, I don't know what I weighed, that I stopped going out of the house for two years. I used to say I was agoraphobic, but the truth is I was terrified for people to see how obese I'd gotten. Um, in those last days before I stopped going out, I remember I was buying my jeans in the Penny's workman's section, and I'd buy the biggest pair. And the biggest pair didn't fit me anymore. And I remember going out to a bar um, with a rope, tying them close, because they wouldn't close, and just a giant men's t-shirt. Until one day, I just didn't go out. And then it turned into a week, and it turned into two years. And, um, you know, not blaming my mom at all. She has my disease, but, you know, she brought me my food. And I remember it was a time of uh, two-for-one coupons at fast food restaurants. And it would be laid out before me, and I could choose what I wanted. Um, but I, even though I didn't believe in God, I believed God had to be present in my life because I woke up one day and put myself on a diet. And uh, somehow I got down to 300 pounds because I got a scale to get weight. I don't know how high I'd gotten. And I remember, you know, I slowly got the courage to start going out again. And I got down to the 220s and, you know, I saw a show on bulimia and I became bulimic so I wouldn't gain back my weight. And anyway, uh, but that was the low for me. My body, what it endured is beyond me in my mind. But I never wanted to die. You know, I always had this spark of hope. I was a big fantasizers, and I think that kept me going. Um, so then he talks about how he dragged his mattress to the lower floor. Should he leap? And I thought, you know, wow, look at the progression of this disease. He went from super successful on Wall Street to having his mattress on a floor, being afraid that he was going to kill himself. Then he met the doctor. He's told about self-knowledge. Self-knowledge, you know? Let me know why I eat, and then I'm going to stop eating. But, you know, I had to realize it will never matter when I know the exact time, date, or minute, or reason I became a compulsive overeater. Once I became one, that was it. It's like finding out how you got diabetes or lung cancer. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many packs of cigarettes you smoked. You became one. 
So I don't try to figure out why I became a compulsive overeater. It's a waste of time for me. And I always say, I don't want to remember anything else. I don't need to build some resentment I, I don't have today. I am who I am, a compulsive overeater. I am responsible for me. So he talks about, you know, drinking again, the devastating blow to himself, you know, um, food, you know, food was my master. I don't have to go into more of that. I think it's all pretty clear food was my master. I was definitely a slave to it, and I'm running out of time. So he, you know, Ebby comes. The thing that really stood out to me about Ebby and telling him, there was something different about his eyes. And for me, that is what recovery is about. I'm not, as we say, stark, raving, abstinent. I'm not insane like I was when I was on a diet. Don't put that before me. I'm not eating. You know, everybody had to know. I'm on a diet. You know, stay away. You know, like, the world needs to stop. Judy can't eat. But, you know, I could really relate to that. The fresh eyes. I'm at peace. I don't know if it looks like I'm at peace. But, but I do have a life today that is beyond my wildest dreams. Um, I am just going to skip to because I have one minute left. We all know what happens in Bill's story. He gives us the program. But um, we also see the progression of recovery, things that are important to me, destruction of self-centeredness. One of the biggest awarenesses I had for me once I got this physical recovery, and because physical was important to me, I didn't get this for me. I got it only to be a service to God so I could sit here before you today and share my experience, strength, and hope. I was so shallow. I did not think seriously I could achieve anything higher than being able to put jeans tucked in my boots. Mm -hmm. To me, that was, I had arrived. (laughs) And God let me feel that way for about five minutes, said, no, no, Judy, you only have physical recovery and the other recovery for me. None of it can be for for anything else. And then, you know, I love the line, most of us feel we need no further look for utopia. We have it right here. And I'm just going to close with saying, you know, my life is exactly the same. Same husband, same house, have my own business I started 10 years ago when I was in a relapse. Um, But I got to tell you something, my life is utopia. Because to be free of the obsession is utopia. To not fear clothes not fitting me, to not fear being made fun of in public is utopia. That is my utopia. So thank you. Hi, good morning everybody. Uh, My name is Terry. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Hi, Hi. so when Judy and I spoke about arranging today, we just kept it simple. So uh, Judy so beautifully talked about the first two chapters, and I'm going to talk about the next two chapters. Um, but I'm going to little, I'm going to cha-cha ahead. I'm going to come back to there as a solution, and I'm going to jump to more about alcoholism. Um, so my name is Terry. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and. Um, I didn't bring pictures with me today, um, but I always say if I brought my pictures, uh, I would def- they would circulate in the room, and I'd definitely get them back because you wouldn't want to keep them. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I'm five, one and a half. My highest weight that I know of was 215, and, um, and today I'm just so grateful that I don't have to live in that body anymore, mm-hmm. but I have to do this program because I still live in that mind. So, I mean, the mind is still there, right? Um, so... I'm just going to kind of, you know, take off, take 
off where Judy left. And, um, you know, she was talking about Bill, right? And Bill's story, which, you know, I, I was always a person who never thought I related to Bill. You know, what do I have in common with, you know, he's a man, he's a Wall Street, you know, stockbroker. But the, uh, the beauty in Bill's story to me today is that he had a disease, it made his life unmanageable. And he had all the stages of addiction that I've experienced. And, you know, he had the excitement, he had the necessity, and he had the oblivion. And I've lived all of that in food, right? I've lived all of that in food. And um, to me, more about alcoholism is just kind of taking Bill's story and seeing how it, ma how it manifests itself in, in our lives, in my life. And um, so I'm going to start just by looking at the first couple of pages of More About Alcoholism. And, um, you know, when I read this, basically the first couple of pages is, you know, talking to me about trying to do it the way other people do it, trying to eat the way other people eat. You know, some of the things that, um, we, that it talks about in the story is, or, or in this chapter, is, um, you know, I'm... I'm trying to control and enjoy my food uh, in my disease. Uh -huh. I, I'm trying to prove myself, this is on page 31, an exception to the rule. I need to tell you that when I read this and I prepared for this, one of the things that really struck me is I can do this abstinently. I can try to prove myself an exception to the rule. Uh -huh. And the way I can try to do that is if I'm not honest about my alcoholic foods, and, it, you know, for the longest time, they could have been foods that were abstinent for me. But all of a sudden, I'm getting more clarity, right? I'm being more honest. And I'm realizing that, you know, maybe you can eat a certain food in your abstinence. And I think, well, if it's legitimate for you, it's probably okay for me, right? Not necessary. Mm -hmm. Not necessary. So when I read these pages, you know, it dawned on me that the honesty and the, un the honesty about the unmanageability has to kind of prevail over the abstinence you know it really has to prevail I can't measure my recovery by what you do I can't measure my you know I can't measure my program particularly my abstinence by what other people do or their behaviors you know um I I just vacationed this week um and I was in Las Vegas not a place where you know I uh I don't know not a place where if I was in recovery, if I wasn't in recovery, it would probably be a good place for me. Mm -hmm. But um, going up to the gambling table is probably not a good idea for me, mm -hmm. you know? It's exhilarating, it's fun. I do like to do it. Um, but I started thinking about like the effect, mm -hmm. you know, the effect. And I know I'm not talking about food here, but you know, that behavior may be good for somebody else but it's probably not the best thing for me. And, and depending on my motive, right? If I'm, I'm talking about something different, but this is the honesty I'm talking about and the insanity, whether it's the food or the behavior, you know, I always have to keep myself in check. So um, one of my favorite parts, and this was pointed out to me by one of my favorite speakers, but on page 34 and more about alcoholism, um, to me this, this just lays it right open for me on page 34. It's talking about me and whether I can recover or not. Um, whether I can, if this is the, the second full paragraph, whether such a person, the person who can't stop altogether, and that's me, can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose. 
I lost the power to choose. There was no way I was going to stop without a non-spiritual basis. I didn't understand that till I got over to the other side, but I see that really clearly now, you know. And and that first step, right? If powerlessness is the problem, then I have to access a power and that's all about spirituality for me. That's all about spirituality. So um so the two guys that I love to talk about that are, you know, the main characters and more about alcoholism, Jim and Fred. Um, I need to be honest and tell you this. this is a secret I don't think I've ever told anyone. Um, but in my disease and in my recovery, not being recovered, but in my recovery, kind of doing the one, two, three dance, whenever I read, which wasn't often, which whenever I read more about alcoholism, I loved Jim. He was my favorite character. And the reason I loved Jim is he did a crazy concoction with his alcohol. And I love crazy concoctions with food. Like, right? I think you alluded a little bit to it, like crazy experiments, like crazy things I would put together, especially in college, you know. The normal eaters just thought it was fun. I thought it was a great high, like, you know, to to do crazy things with food. And to the extent that I can tell you, up until probably the last few years, that I would actually salivate when I would read about Jim putting whiskey in the milk. Okay? I would actually salivate because I'm a compulsive overeater. I've done a lot of crazy shit with food. <laughs> and he did crazy stuff with, with alcohol, but it happened to have, you know, something creamy in it. So it worked for me. You know, it actually when you think about it, it's kinda like sugar and milk, you know? That's pretty much what he did. So, um, Anyway, I need to say that out loud to somebody because it's really, that's how insane I am. That's how insane I am, folks. I may not be, I may have never reached an alcoholic bottom, although I did like to change my mood with alcohol. Um, I never reached a bottom, but I, I uh, I so relate to anything that has to do with food because that's the kind of, I'm such a food addict that in one of my meetings, maybe 20 years ago, 15, because I've, oh, I forgot to qualify a little bit. So I've been in the rooms since 91. Um, uh, I came in, I, you know, I didn't want a food plan. I didn't want anybody telling me how to eat. Um, And, you know, three years later, I kind of could, had an out-of-body experience seeing myself, you know, binge on on sugar-free muffins because I thought I was, like, figuring out the answer. Um, And I, I got abstinent in 93, and uh, I was very lucky to get kind of really, really understanding of the fact that I was addicted to flour and sugar. Like I got that really early on that I am addicted to flour and sugar. I understand that for me, it is the same as an alcoholic. Um, and I got that intellectually, and then I kind of spiritually only got the fact that I'm powerless and I got to do these steps and I got to you know, try to make God the most important thing in my life. And the fact of the matter was, I tried so hard and I worked the steps over and over again, trying to make, you know, being convinced I was powerless and that God was going to restore me to sanity. But I worked so hard at it. And the one thing I never, ever, ever did was put God absolutely first and put others first. Like mm-hmm. I never did that. So I, I, I struggled to stay afloat. And with the grace of God, I stayed afloat. However, it was finally, eventually, I realized it really is a spiritual program 
that's why I get that paragraph so much more now. You know, I I quit, but it was a non-spiritual basis for me for a long time in the rooms, in the rooms. So um, I forget where I was going with that. I was going somewhere with that. Uh, oh, so at a meeting, fifteen years ago. I'm in the rooms and, a, and, a, and in a meeting, and a woman brings an infant into the room, right? She brings an infant to the, to the meeting, and she has the diaper bag. And um, this is how insane. I won't go through my whole story, but I'll just, you'll be able to see uh, how, how and if you relate to my craziness and insanity. So she, during the meeting, feeds the infant in the car seat or whatever. And she takes out a baby food that I have euphoric recall about from the time, because I remember eating it even into my like toddler years. But you know, like a normal food addict, I don't have a lot of memories from when I was three or four, but I remember that. I remember that baby food. I remember exactly what it was and how I could eat jars and jars and jars of it, and for some reason must have had it later on in life for whatever crazy reason. And, I, and I'm like inventorying that baby food. Like I am over there in a meeting onto that baby food like how insane is that like it's not even like a sandwich it's like baby food like that to me I always recall that moment and know like that's how like we're talking about more about alcoholism to me talks about the insanity of the disease you know because here's Jim he's having like a crappy day in my opinion it's not like the best day he's you know he's you know Bill talks about success right he had such success and he was drinking. And then he like, he's on Skid Row, he's still drinking. So like, you know, Fred and Jim, Jim is not having the best of day. He thinks he's gonna possibly like maybe have a ray of sunshine by selling a car, but meanwhile his disease is turning, 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 telling him exactly what to do that he shouldn't do. You know, stop at a bar. Last place if I'm having a bad day, I'm going to is a buffet. Last place, or at least I shouldn't be there. You know, I shouldn't be there. So anyway. Um, let me just look at my notes for a minute. So yeah, so quitting, whether a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis, uh, that just leaves it wide open to me. You know, um, have people call me that will say, um, I just, you know, I just want to, I'm really not doing bad. I'm just, I just want to stop like grazing in the afternoon, <laughs> having a bite here and there. Like, okay, like if you can stop that, that we don't need to talk. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you can stop doing that, or you think you have the power to stop that, then we don't need to talk. But if that grazing is leading to something else and it's been happening for 10 years and you still think you're going to stop it or you just need a little help with it, it just all leads back to the fact that that's why these steps work. Because I'm powerless. Mm -hmm. I'm powerless. I'm powerless over whether it's the slightest bite or the biggest platter. I am totally powerless mm -hmm. over that. So I'm just going to skip over to page 37 and my favorite line, the five, five word sentence on 37 that just always rings true for me and it happened again and again and again. The insane idea wins out. It won out. You know, I, I don't want to do it. 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 And I do it because the insane idea is going to win out again and again and again because if there's just the food and there's no God between me and the food the insanity takes over it just takes over um, so I'm going to jump over to 42 and 43 if you will um, I guess 
I didn't talk so much about Fred. Um, you know, Fred's having a great day, right? He's having a great day, not a cloud on the horizon. Um, mm. You know, the story, and, and I've said this even in this room a couple times, um, my son was born, and he was a healthy baby boy, and he came after my daughter who was not healthy and who died eight days after birth. And I don't say that to arouse your, uh, arouse your sympathy, but the fact that I had every reason to be joyful. I had every reason to be joyful. And I was so convinced that my son's birth was what I needed to stop eating. Like that was going to be the answer. This was going to be God's kind of um, redemption for me that I would be okay. And literally, I am in the hospital room. I am probably four hours out after his birth. And he was born, um, he was born early in the morning, so now it's early morning. Maybe I've rested a little. And they, you know, he's in the room, and I'm holding him. And I just remember thinking, this is what you were supposed to do for me, God. This is where I was supposed to be. This is, this is it now. I'm going to be... I'm going to be sane. I didn't have that thought, but that was kind of like what I was thinking. And I thought, and I'm not hungry. I remember thinking, foods, I'm not thinking about food right now, so maybe this is what I needed. This, you know, after, before his birth, you know, literally being two, you know, over 200 pounds being pregnant, and I'm five, one and a half, and, you know, and, and, and thinking, you know, I don't know about anybody else here, but being pregnant was a license to overeat and overeat and overeat and overeat and overeat. So anyway, I just remember the clear, the clear thought that I had no reason to overeat, that I would be okay. And then my husband brought me my favorite, one of my favorite binge foods. And I can't tell you how fast I was into that bag. Mm. I can't tell you how fast I was into that bag. And it was almost when I was opening the wrapper, I thought, I have to be crazy. I have to be crazy. I, I was so resolved a minute ago. Like, like a minute ago, I was so resolved. So anyway, um, and that's why I relate to Fred. You know, Fred didn't have anything going on. His business deal went well. He's crossing the room. He thinks about a couple of cocktails, and he's into them. Like, that's how fast it happens. This disease is cunning, baffling, powerful. And, I mean, I've experienced those three words over and over and over again. You know, over and over and over again. So, um, but I'm going to jump to 42 and 43 about Fred. Uh, particularly 40, I guess it's 43. I'm see if I can find it real fast. Um, yeah, yeah. Bottom of 42. Bottom of 42. I just think, you know, that's when I just, you know, I really feel the power of God, not the powerlessness, because the opposite of the, that powerlessness is the power of God. The bottom of 42, he says, the moment I made up my mind to go through with this process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved, as in fact it proved to be. So he makes a decision. He makes a decision to do the steps. I was in this room a long time, and I made the decision to do the steps. 
I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else, but I made, you know, I made the decision to go through with the process because prior to that, it really wasn't a process. You know, my story is I was in the rooms, I was abstinent, I was the poster child of abstinence, everyone was following me, I was telling them how to eat, I was eating, you know, trying to eat sometimes restrictedly, I realize that now. I was getting effect from controlling people I was, I was sponsoring, by the way, I'll admit that. And, you know, and I really hadn't gone through the steps. I had read the steps, I had worked with somebody who brought me as far as maybe six or seven, and I tried to figure nine through 12 out myself and did a really shitty job, but of course, I was in charge of a lot of people, so I must know what I'm doing. I didn't know what I was doing. I really didn't. The moment I made up my mind to go through, the, go through with the process, for me, folks, it was the moment I got honest that what I was doing didn't feel right. What I was doing seven years ago didn't feel right. It, it, it wasn't the answer because I was pissed off at everybody. I was pissed off. I was abstinent. I was in recovery, and I was pissed off at everybody. So um, I'm telling you part of the story of, my, of getting recovered in the rooms. So I was in recovery for a while in the rooms and got recovered about six years ago. And then also part of my story is getting recovered and not really growing spiritually. And then three years ago, getting kind of reborn in the program, I guess two and a half, two and a half years ago. Um, so, uh, and the last, I love the bottom of 43. It just, just makes it really clear to me. My defense has to come from a higher power, whether it's, um, no matter what it is, no matter what it is. Okay. I was just on a trip. Um, I just shared this with someone this morning. Um, four times the tour company called to val to verify the meal needs that I had four times. Four times, went over it four times. The day comes, I'm on a tour, I'm on a national park tour, and we are up in some canyon, and the guy takes the lunches out, and my lunch isn't there. My lunch isn't there. Um, and uh, I had to go to God. I had to go to God, you know? Like, I wasn't going to die. I wasn't going to die if I lacked a meal. Um, and, of course, my immediate thing was to try I wanted, there was part of Terry wanted to go right to anger. Four times? You call me four times to verify my needs, my meal needs? I wanted to go to anger, and I had to get back into love and uh, compassion. And it worked. It worked out. It worked out, you know. I didn't die, I didn't starve, um, but have to go to God. If I'm not involving God in that, it's gonna be totally screwed up. Mm. I mean, it, it would have definitely went to anger without God. It definitely would have. I, you know, I just can't tell you all the places it could have gone. All the places it could have gone. But um, this says the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink. I always read that and think to myself, at certain times, mm -hmm. all the time for me, mm -hmm. all the time for me. Um, you know, maybe I can, you know, maybe I can wing it or get, you know, uh, on my knowledge, maybe sometimes restrict or whatever. But yeah, I'm just, I'm just not good at this. So 
I'm going to check my time. Thanks, Judy. I'm going to go. Um, so I want to talk about there is a solution because it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. And I've learned recently that it's quite possible it was originally written to be the first chapter in the book. But, um, and I kind of understand why it probably wouldn't have been a good first chapter for somebody who had never heard of the steps or picked up the book or picked up the idea or the concepts before because um, it's really, it really talks about a lot of things on a very, for me anyway, uh, on a lot of things that are on a very high level. You know, so if I'm like a civilian who's never been exposed to the steps before, there's a lot and there's a solution that I think I can glean because I've been in for a while, but I think for a newcomer it might be, you know, I need that convincing testimony from the doctor's opinion that like bowls me over because that's a, a medical professional, you know, it's not necessarily a, a, an addict telling me. And I don't understand, right, when I come in here, I don't understand that, you know, we, that it's a fellowship that it's about you know opening ourselves up to each other and being a channel for each other. I don't get that like if if I just walk in here. So um, the thing that really struck me about there's a solution is there's a solution if it were was to be the first chapter was to really be the precursor and the understanding statement of what the book's about, right? Or why they've written the book. And um, if you look at page 17, 18, <clears throat> 19 two times and 20, there's all references to the book and why it's written. All references to the volume. Bill likes to kind of interchange volume with book. And um, so, you know, we've concluded on page 19, we've concluded to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. So they're going to explain the problem. And I love that he like, you know, just, I understand that the book was published mainly because the founders of the program were seeing the program watered down. Man, I mean, I feel like if you're in OA, you really understand that because mm. I feel like a lot of our meetings get away from the solution. Mm. And, you know, I'm sorry if that offends anyone, but I really feel that a lot of our meetings get away from the solution mm. and they get more into the fellowship. They're really not about the program. They get into the fellowship and, and the idea that, you know, we're here to kind of listen to each other. Um, so uh, in those pages, 17 through 20, when he references the book, uh, we hope this volume on page 18, we hope this volume will inform and comfort those who are or may be affected. He's talking about, you know, the purpose of the book, why they've written the book, the consolation of the book. And then, of course, you know, we, we have to get to, to kind of the next couple chapters that lay open the book is, is about developing a relationship with God. It's about the solution. The solution is God. To me, it's just so simple. The solution is God. Um, so uh, just give me a minute. Uh, yeah. So I want to move over to um, 28 and 29. I'm going to jump back and forth a little bit, okay, if you'll indulge with me. Um, then on 29, talks about clear-cut directions. So he gets, he tries to be, they try to be real simple. Bill tries to be real simple. We've written a book to help those people who are questioning it. We've, we've written a book, you know, so that people can figure it out. We're trying to share with you what we've learned. You know, we've documented what's worked for us. So... There's not like a million paragraphs to tell us 
that the descriptions of the step work is here. All it says is clear, clear cut directions are given showing how we recovered. One sentence, part of a sentence just lays it wide open for me. So that tells me, and I needed that. I needed when I finally realized the first 164 pages were something worth reading, that they actually just need to be followed. Like I don't need to read them. Like even six and seven, only two paragraphs. I don't need to read them and then go figure it out with a million other books or a million other people. I just need to read them. And I need to understand. And with the help of God, if I'm having any trouble understanding, it'll come. You know, it'll come. Just as, as, which is exactly why I live in 10, 11, and 12 now. Not because I know it, because God's still going to reveal it to me. As long as I do his work, as long as I work with him, he's still going to reveal it to me. So clear-cut directions. Like, that just tells me, folks, that tells me I don't need to find an answer anywhere else. And I don't need to help you find an answer anywhere else. To me, if, if either one of us have a question, the answer's here. The answer's here. I may not be able to find it for you, but it's here. I know that it's here. Um, so, and that's what 28 and 29 uh, kind of get down to for me. Um, 28, we may form, I'm, I'm in the middle of 28, after they talk about William James. Um, a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we are willing and honest enough to try. Man, is that a powerful statement. Because that's kind of like my recovery and how I got to recovered. That is really kind of the story. Forming a relationship with God on simple and understandable terms because I really wanted to complicate the shit out of that. Mm -hmm. I really did. I really want it, even I can do that now with my 11th step. I can do that now with my 11th step because I get so into, let me see how my day is going. Let me see what I did. Let me see, let me see, let me see. That's all about me. That's like not, that's not really thinking about, okay. I'm not, 11th step isn't for me about punishing myself or, you know, it's really, what does God want me to see here? What do I need to go to God with that keeps popping up again and again and again? As soon as I'm willing and honest enough to try, I can't, can't tell you how I have to every day work again towards honesty. I know God will help me with that, but I'm a, I'm a food addict. Mm-hmm. I'm as dishonest as they come. I lied to myself about food all the time. And I told you, in recovery, I could lie about my abstinence if I'm not really seeing my alcoholic foods, if I'm not really, you know, being, really knowing I'm getting an effect from something that maybe I have to put down or a behavior that I have to put down. And I'm winding up here. So I'm going to go right to, um, let's go to 25 for a minute, which I think is one of the most important pages in the book. Not just because it's the title, the title paragraph for this, for this um, chapter, but um, the bottom page to me is just the big book often talks about the choices we have. Mm. And to me, the choices again and again and again, I'm at the bottom of this page are life or death. Mm-hmm. For me, it's that simple. It's life or death. Um, it's either God or not God. Because if God's in my life, even if I'm facing death, I'm going to be okay. And, you know, hopefully today if I face that, it's going to be for reasons that don't have, to, don't have anything to do with my addiction. You know? Um, but I always have two alternatives. I can go on to the bitter end, and if I'm, I'm in my head about something... 
okay? Or I can accept spiritual help. I was in my head. We were going to get our room changed while we were away this week. And we were going to get changed into a room that didn't have a fridge. Oh, God. Oh, God. And, you know, I have this certain way when I travel of how I'd, like, take care of my food and my abstinence, mm-hmm. especially my breakfast. We weren't going to have a refrigerator. And I kept thinking about it over and over and over again until finally I'm like, okay, got to turn this over because now I'm obsessing about it. So if it's the slightest thing or the biggest thing, like my life, you know, like the fact that I wasn't growing spiritually. So that was going to be a bitter end for me. Eventually it was going to be a bitter end if I couldn't get honest. Um, And accepting spiritual help, you know, it's not just about believing in God. It's allowing God in, you know, allowing God in. And um, I think I'm going to end there. So with that, um, thank you.